It's week six of ABC's The Crossing Podcast, the place where we discuss all things crossing-related, going in-depth on the episode you just saw, and exploring the science behind the fiction. Back again, it's co-creator of The Crossing, Dan Dworkin. Hey, how's it going? Hey, and normally this is where Jay would go, hi. <laughs> um, but we're currently staring at his, the chair that is empty where he was supposed to be. But that's so, okay. No, it's, oh, it's perfect. Because fine. we have another J in the house. Look at that. Executive producer Jason T. Reed. Amazing. And yes, I use the T. Well, it's graphically, <laughs> it looks better on the page. So I I'm your host, ABC Radio's Jason Nathanson. So let's just jump right into this week's episode, where finally we learn more about the Oakland incident. Very exciting. I like getting that backstory on Jude. Yeah, it was um, something obviously we wanted to play out sooner rather than later. From the pilot, we kind of tease this idea that he has something in his backstory in Oakland that drove him to out of his family's life and into the life of Port Canaan and the people there. So this was the episode in which to do it. Why? What, what did you want to show by showing what he had gone through in the past? And what about his character do you think this, this revealed so we could learn more about how he might react in the future? Well, it's something that he... He actually says it in dialogue a couple times in later episodes, but he, when there is a wrong that needs writing, he is compelled uh, to deal with it. And even if it is at the expense of his connection to his family or at the expense of um, his own safety, he's driven in a way he can't control. So you haven't seen it yet, but there's, there's a couple instances in, in coming episodes where he, he explains to a, a one character who I won't name how he, he, he really can't help himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, that has, has brought him to where he is. And how long, just um, for practicality, how long was he in Port Canaan before we met him? Uh, I think he said about 18 months. 18 months. Okay. Because there seemed to be definitely a familiarity with people there. And when we meet him, he's already well established there. Um, yeah. And so this incident was now three years in the past. And it seemed clear from at least from what we saw, now that we know that he's been there 18 months, his wife probably wasn't coming with the kid, right? Well, he continues to believe that she's coming with the kid, which I think is what keeps him level a little bit. And then... Um, you know, there, there, there comes a point, obviously, in, in episode six when he realizes that he's been kidding himself and how that, that's not gonna, it's not going to play out that way. And that kind of destabilizes him even more in, in the series. I think things start to come apart a little bit. And then part of my favorite part of the episode, for sure, is, is Lindauer versus Jude. Like, I love that combination. And I didn't even think, that, I wasn't expecting or wanting that combination. But then when we finally got it at the end... Um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, and that is just a taste, yeah. a, a tiny taste of what is to come in episode seven, where uh, I, I, I never know how much to spoil and how much to hold back, but, but there's the, a good chunk of the beginning portion of the next episode is just mano a mano. And meanwhile, back at the camp, um, they're setting up the electric fence. These guys are feeling like they're, their world's being closed off, and... I don't know. Does it say anything about, I mean, we, we've talked about the origin of the story of the show and the picture of the Syrian refugees, but does this say anything about how refugees um, and immigrants are being treated today in the U.S.? 
there is certainly a correlation between what we wrote and showed showed there and uh, and how it how it really goes. Um, we tried not to be too preachy about it, but th- there are statistics that we've had Lindauer, I think, uh, recite in the show about just how many asylum seekers are kept in detention in America at any given time, and it's a big number. And not all those people are treated like dirt; like a lot, most of them are treated perfectly fine. But there are there are detainment facilities around the country, privately run, a lot of them, where there is a sense of hopelessness that sets in because what we found in our research is that constitutionality doesn't necessarily apply to these people because they're in a gray area, right. citizenship-wise. So point being, they can be kept indefinitely in these detainment facilities. And there, there are epidemics of suicides and suicide attempts within these facilities because the people have come here, you know, hoping for a better life. And I think that wears off after a while. And so I'm not saying that's the case in every facility. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that represents the way Americans treat immigrants as a whole. I'm just saying there are instances where the situation is pretty sad and hopeless. And you start to see them think about, it's tough because on the one hand, you feel, okay, if I comply with everything they're asking, then that's going to help me get towards citizenship, which is what I want. But sometimes you feel like you might have to step up. And if you're the, you know, the, the nail, you're going to get pounded down. Um, so that's a tough choice that these people have to, we're seeing them have to start to make. Do I comply or do I, you know, fight? Well, and those are the issues that everybody deals with. I mean, that's what I think is really interesting about the framework that Dan and Jay created in the show is you're putting, you're using sort of this fantastical element, this fantastical situation to create real moral and ethical conundrums. So Jude is dealing with the sort of that line between the ethical, the idealistic, I got to be the guy that's, you know, what's, what happens when the next guy who's going to suffer from corruption comes down the pike? Are we going to let, am I going to let him take a bullet like my friend did? What debt do I have to my friend who, who put his life in my hands as well and it didn't work out for him versus going along to get along to make sure your family's safe and letting the bad guys win. And that same thing we play with, with sort of every dynamic in the show, whether it's the, the, the first migration versus the second migration, whether it's, um, the detention, the sort of threat versus the nurturing of these refugees that come in it's, that we deal with every day. It's really, I mean, and specifically in this episode, it's Caleb. Caleb kind of typifies it, I mm-hmm. think. It's, it's like you, you said, it's, he's been trying to comply. Right. Like he's been really, you can just see it on his face. He's been trying his damnedest to suppress whatever noncompliance urges he might naturally have and just he just wants the best for him and Rebecca and he thinks going along to get along, we'll get him there. But he's reached a point now when he can't suppress his instincts anymore. And it's going to be interesting to see like where that takes him. And it's, that's his Caleb. That's his nature is to kind of from what he was doing in the past to kind of fix things and, and be the guy who takes charge. It seems. And it seems like for Jude as well, uh, I think his wife says at one point, you're the problem. It right. seems like even if 
these guys didn't wash up on Jude's beach, Jude would be into something, trying to fight something. He can't just sit back and be the sheriff of a small town. Right. And I think that's what she is insinuating, even though it's not in the dialogue, but but it's on her face a little bit when she's talking to him and saying, so what is this? What's this case you're on? Mm -hmm. Like just the way she says that is almost like, what would you be doing down here? What hornet's nest are you poking with a stick? Uh, now we also see uh, Marshall and Hannah talking on the phone, um, and he's playing her the Rolling Stones. First of all, why why Stones over all the things you could have? Picked? That was that was a debate, yeah. Because I know on one hand Stones isn't great because it does make you sound like an old guy writing the show, <laughs> and I'm 45, medium old, not old, <laughs> but, uh, but but I think but, you're, young, you're a young man. But it's That's like I, did, I mean, sto- but man. the Stones were old when I was a kid, you right. know, so. Right. But the reason was we just, I, it, it goes back to a line he had in episode three with her where he says, as they're walking away from that band, and she's like, those guys are great. And he, he says, I, I think he says, yeah, they're all right. I don't think the Stones are too worried. And she goes, what? Because she has no idea what the Stones are or anything. Right. So it's a, it's a callback to that. But that line, we were, we were just trying to think of a, a, a real general thing he would say. Like, we, we honestly, we went down a list, like, like uh, in episode three of him saying, yeah, it's all right, but I don't think, I don't think Pearl Jam's worried. I don't like, think Nickelback's worried. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, you know, it, they, they just all sounded lame. Um, so I, I don't think Zeppelin's worried. Like, I, I don't know. Like, so the stones seem to fit. Because that's what people, the, the stones is like, you know, it's like an adjective. It's not even a, you know, it's, right. it's like... So anyway, that's the long, the long answer to your question. And so, if yeah. it wasn't going to be the Stones, I would imagine the Beatles would be another thing that would. I fit. think the Beatles are worried. Yeah, yeah. It just didn't seem as you know, Stones kind of rolls off the tongue. It's, it's, <laughs> some, it's something like a guy who doesn't give a shit would say. See, I knew there would be something behind the decision though, because those the decisions you make, and I think this is what a lot of people don't you know appreciate is the decisions you make are intentional for almost. Every little piece of dialogue, every word, People right? would be surprised, I think, yeah. I mean, at least I don't know if that's true for all writers, but uh, I, I think for obsessive, compulsive ones, uh, yeah. I mean, you're only making so many episodes, and you, you just you want every line to accurately reflect the voice of the character who's saying it, and you want to get in all your... I don't know. Yeah, so we, we, we take every line pretty seriously. And then our other major thread here is Dr. Sophie and her, we see how much she's trying to work with Super Mom Reese to get Leia back to her. And uh, I think that was a little, I, I was a little bit surprised at just how much she was invested in getting Leia back to her mom. Yeah, I, I think maybe she had seen in Reese like that she wasn't going to give up. And that maybe things could go south if she didn't get her kid back. Mm-hmm. So I think in a way, it w- it's Sophie doing it as much for the camp and f- for the government, you know, and for herself as for Reed. You know what I mean? She was just, mm-hmm. she, I, I think that was, she thought that was going to be better for everyone in the end, including Leia. Well, you guys um, had always played with the backstory of, of her because she's sick seeing in Reese someone who wouldn't give up on her daughter, no matter what the circumstances were, in a way that she felt like she hadn't necessarily been supported. That's to. true. And that's that's in there, I think. There's a line There's a about line. that. I mean, so I'm, 
Reese says, why are you helping me? And she says, maybe I wish my daughter fought for me as hard as you fight for Leia. There's something like that in there. And that's true. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, it's that 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 connection kind of fuels her decisions as well. And is it are we to assume um, take it face value, at least Dr. Sophie wants to cure the world and help the world with this thing that she thinks she's discovered? Or I mean, is some of it selfish? She wants to cure herself as well. Maybe. I think there's something really interesting about what Sophie's desire is going to pick up. She's emotionally driven because she herself is sick. She went into the job that she has in order to try to take advantage of the time that she has to to help other people and fix things that is a, that she's emotionally connected to. And it, and it sets up going to the technology element of it, what what drives her. And when we're looking at, at Reese as Apex, who's you know dangerous and, and and sort of set up on the as you said the bad side of the of the equation, she she doesn't worry about the things that Sophie worries about, and she doesn't worry about the things that all of the that all of Sophie's patients worry about. And when they stop an epidemic, and when she sees the suffering that her fellow fellow humans go through. Reese doesn't have to deal with any of that. I mean, she has to deal the practical matter of keeping her daughter safe, but that's just a matter of, you know, making the elixir. Um, so it's a, I, I think it's an interesting duality again there. Like you have a person whose entire life is dedicated to trying to fix things yeah. that Reese is fixed. Like she's right. the, she's the panacea for her. It would be very difficult if you are a driven scientist like Sophie um, to take at face value somebody saying you can't pursue this technology, right? This miraculous technology because bad shit's going to happen. Trust me. Like even if even if there was proof that bad shit was going to happen, it's like it would be very difficult. In the same way that Jude can't control his instincts right. and Marquis and Caleb can't control his instincts like Sophie I think is a human just like them and she can't control the drive that she has to move this ball forward and we get a fantastic slow speed car crash with Dr. Sophie <laughs> was that uh, w- were there stunt people involved in that was that was that the actress driving the car how did that there go down a stunt car. Um, I'm, I imagine that there was a, I wasn't on set that day, but I, I assume there was a stunt person in the car when it did its slow roll into the mountain. Then again, it rolled so slowly into the hill that maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Like maybe, maybe they just put her in there and, and cause there were, t- I know there were tires that it ran into and then we erased them with visual effects. So, uh, yeah, a slow-mo, slow-mo car. Cause I know if I'm, the, if, if, if I'm the actor playing that, I want to drive the car into the mountain. Right. That just seems oh, like yeah. it's fun and not dangerous. I don't, I, you know, I don't know honestly okay. if they were there was a stunt person involved. Well, if you could get back to me on that, I, 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 I will. Have, I'm, I'm texting someone right now. Um, <laughs> so we have uh, Dan. We know what you do and creator of the show and you know the writer and stuff like that. Uh, Jason, can you talk about your involvement and what exactly it is and how you guys kind of came together? Well, uh, we met originally, um, Dan and Jay were working on a pilot, was that four years ago now, and we were actually sharing office spaces. I was working on another pilot of a show called Of Kings and Prophets, and um, we we were sharing the same office space, walking by to get coffee together, et cetera, and um, our show uh, got picked up. And Dan and Jay, um, we, we heavily, heavily recruited them to come work with us on that. 
And um, it was a great experience, as anybody who watches this show knows or who has ever worked with Anna Jay, as they're amazing writers and incredibly creative and hardworking. So um, we walked away from that experience, although that show um, ended after one season. We walked, I walked away from that experience just sort of desperate to work with them again. Um, and that show was a, was a historical epic, um, but I know that they were uh, more genre-oriented writers, so I became uh, sort of obsessed with stalking them, uh, which is really the Weird. job of a non-writing producer, mm. uh, is stalking and uh, sending them ideas and sending them short stories and sending them stuff from, uh, from Brick Moon and, and all that kind of stuff. Of course, nothing that I sent them ever ever really gelled, uh, <laughs> but I think they got so tired of me banging on their door that um, when they had the original concept for this, uh, they came over and um, and we started talking about it, and, and we used the resource of the company to try to help help them bring their vision to life. Yeah, we literally have offices next to each other, so it was really easy to just wa- to just walk over and go, "Hey, you want to do this with us?" And he's like, "Yep." It's all about proximity. The rest is history. Well, as, as opposed to like me poking my head on, going, "Hey, where are you guys going? Are you having a meeting with somebody else? What are you doing? Why don't you come in here? Well, I'll give you. I got coffee. I got some roasted nuts. You want something?" So when people see at the end, they see you know the titles and they see uh, you guys, uh, Dan, Dan and Jay, as executive producers, and you as executive producer as well. What is it? What specifically do you do on the show? Um, Uh-oh. well, that's a, a lot of people. Questions want. a trap. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, well, you know, it's a, it's a, this show in particular is a really, uh, big undertaking. Um, it was a lot of heavy lifting in terms of the physical production of it. Uh, we had particularly in the pilot episode with, uh, boats and drones and helicopters and building million gallon water tanks and all these kinds of things. So coordinating that, helping uh, Dan and Jay through the process of finding the right director, um, in this case, Rob Bowman, who I had worked with on a feature many years ago and I've known for a long time, um, getting the right department heads in, the right staffing so that we could try to get the look that we were all looking for, helping guide mm-hmm. uh, and provide the resources so that the the vision that these guys had while they were working on the script um, could help be realized in, in the real world. And then, and then helping to run interference with the studio and the network, not, not in the sense of, in the sense of making sure that everybody's on the same page, making sure that people know what the direction are, direction of the show is and the intention of the sequences so that, um, cause there's, you know, literally hundreds of people on the, on the network and studio side, uh, there's hundreds of people on the production side and, you know, and then we had the, the writer's room and, and every decision basically goes through these two guys. So there's just a lot of tonnage of time and attention that needs to be um, managed. So there's um, at the risk of getting into like a mutual love fest, which is never <laughs> my inclination. <laughs> I don't know even why I'm saying this, but like. With certain non-writing executive producers, they're they're good with production, physical production elements, like he's talking about. Right. And then certain guys or girls are more uh, better with creative. And Jason happens to be the guy who does both extremely well, and is well versed in genre and sci-fi, mm-hmm. which is in part why he's on the podcast today to talk sci-fi and such. So yes, that was very. It was a. It was a nice little marriage. So you said uh, Rob Bowman, the director of the show. You have one director. I didn't even. The one director for the pilot. One director. And then for the we pilot. had a number. And then then every. Uh, I think 
because in, in movies everybody thinks you know the director gets credited with it's his vision, the auteur, yeah, theory. of everything. But on TV, there's usually a different director for every episode of a of a show, or a I, couple different ones. Well, I start I started out working in features, and and now uh, have expanded to to do both. And one of the transitions um, for me going from features to television was where that authorship lies. And in feature films, it really, for the most part, everyone's a little different, but that authorship really does lie with the director. In, in television, it lies with the executive producers and the show creators. So it, it, this, is, this series really is the vision of Dan and Jay. And I appreciate what Dan was saying earlier, but like, I'm, I'm there to help. I'm there to facilitate and, and, and um, you know, give guidance and, and resources when I can, like providing... Uh, connection to Pablos and Andrew Hessel and people like that that are in my universe that 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 these guys could take advantage of their um, thinking as well. But in in this series, it is their creation and both things obvious and and not so obvious, things conscious and unconscious. The show really reflects reflects Dan and Jay. Um, of course, it's a collaborative effort. A lot of writers, a lot of directors, but 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 it really all goes through this filter of Dan and Jay, and that's um, that's why I think in I, I always said in features the biggest the biggest most important decision you can make is who directs your show, right? Uh, and I think in TV the most important decision you'll ever make is who, are, who who's your show creator and your showrunner, and I think it's better when they're combined because there's a consistency of vision. Um, and particularly in a show like this that has that's operating on multiple layers and um, has a, a level of sophistication in terms of its storytelling that isn't necessarily always represented on network TV for, for a lot of good and bad reasons, um, you really need you really need that consistency. You really need that vision and the ability to pop in a line like, oh, you know, their meat comes from animals. That that isn't a like a throwaway like hey wouldn't this be a funny line that comes from hours and hours and hours and hours of research and thinking and analyzing who these characters are and how they would relate to it and that's something that you can only sort of consolidate through one sort of core consistent group it's not something you can farm out. That said, Rob Bowman was awesome. Yes. <laughs> well, and, that, and, and quite honestly, I, I mean, really I'll put a plug them. in for Rob Bowman too yeah. because. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was there was a reason that we really wanted him, right. and I'd, I'd done a movie years ago with him called Rain of Fire, and yes, uh, Flying Dragons. Flying Check dragons. it out; it's awesome. Firefighters. Wait, uh, will, will there be dragons in the crossing at some point? I guess you'll just have to wait and see. That's my answer to everything. I'm, <laughs> ne- I'm never going to give no. a no or a yes. <laughs> that is a fantastic tease, and so we'll leave it right there. Want to thank you, Jason Reed, for coming in today it's and my being pleasure. A part of this, uh, and of course Dan Dworkin as well. Thanks, Always man. Uh, and, and Jay, wherever you are, you know. We- Spill some uh, something out for you. Uh, uh, the Crossing Podcast is a production of Brick Moon Fiction. I'm your host, ABC Radio's Jason Nathanson, and we'll cross paths next week.